Good morning, Lighthouse family. How's everybody today? I love the Psalms. Here comes Psalm 103. You ready? Bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Get this. I love this. And forgot, forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from destruction. Anybody ever headed toward destruction? Well, you have been redeemed. We have good news today. We're going to celebrate even more. He crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. And he satisfies your mouth with good things. And here comes the clincher. He renews your youth like an eagle. I know nobody needs that. So let's celebrate this morning his loving kindness. Looking for some lyric to flash up on the screen. This may or may not have been you. If it's not you, would you intercede for somebody today with your worship? Would you join your heart? for that person to sing them out of destruction. All right. Thank you, Lord. Bread of life. I was lost with a broken heart. You picked me up, now I'm set apart. From the ash I am born again. Forever safe, forever safe in the safe. Let's sing that again. I was lost with a broken heart. You picked me up, you picked me up, now I'm set apart from the ash, from the ash I am born again. Forever safe in the Savior's hands, you are more, you are more than my words can say. I follow you, Lord, for all my days. I fix my eyes, follow in your ways. Forever free, forever free in unending grace. Cause you are
celebrate your love this morning. Thank you, God, that you fight for us, that you reign in this crazy world. Your kingdom, we celebrate your kingdom and your love. So he is jealous of me. in your life. 
church family. Glad that you guys are here. Um, I am, I'm actually honestly, truly glad to get to be here with you in person. It didn't seem like on Wednesday that was going to be the case when, when my wife called me and said, I can't smell anything. And I'm going, oh, because I'm sitting in a room with my staff and I'm getting a call from my wife and it's one of those that you just go, you dread, right? So needless to say, the thing that was heaviest on my heart in that moment, and I, let me just say right now, my wife took the really long test to make sure that it wasn't. She is totally clear. It, it was either having her connected to the migraine she was having or something environmental. <sighs> right? But I have to admit that my greatest concern, and that wasn't for my wife, it wasn't for my kids, it wasn't for myself, it wasn't even for my mother-in-law, although I was concerned. My greatest, why are you laughing about that? My greatest concern, quite honestly, was for my staff, that I might have unintentionally exposed them. And here's the thing, guys. We don't live by fear. And I think that far too much of this last year has been getting us to focus on something to fear and be overwhelmed by it. But the greatest concern I had in that moment, when I was faced with the very real possibility that I might have exposed people that I love is that I might have unintentionally hurt people, and that is our desire, is that we would be shrewd as serpents, that we are not giving in to fear, that we're keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, but at the same time doing everything we can to mitigate, to, to lessen 
the negative impacts. We are not the kind of Christ followers who walk into buildings and refuse to wear a mask and yell at people who are called because of their job to, uh, to keep the boundaries that have been established for them. We're not going to do that. We're not going to be jerks. That's a lot of what we talked about last week. We are not going to use the freedoms we have in Christ to be jerks because we have been called to be his ambassadors reflecting his heart into this community. So the email I sent was in part because I know you guys were very concerned and the coconut telegraph was going into overdrive and I was getting texts from all over the place. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to get out ahead of this. My wife doesn't have COVID. I don't have COVID. We're all good. We get to gather together and I'm so grateful for that. But it was also a good reminder that we need to still be vigilant in that. If you don't feel like it's necessary, don't do it just for yourself. Put the parameters in place out of love for, out of respect for others who are concerned about it. Because I'll be honest, there are people that are a part of our church who are afraid to come. And while we can't control that or dictate that, we love you, we miss seeing your face. And while we can't force you to be here, we want to do everything we can to kind of minimize that. We were going to do communion today. The plan was to serve communion. And we just realized, you know, as we are still coming out from under this and just out of uh, being respectful of the fact that we're not fully out of this, we are going to instead choose to, to do communion at home. I hope that you understand the heart behind that is not because we don't have the freedom to do so. It's because we are choosing to submit that freedom out of love for others. And I think that we can really capture a better heart even in doing it at home, and I'll explain later. I'm getting ahead of myself. A couple of things I want to let you know about coming up, and then we're going to dive into John chapter 6. First off, Jeff and I received a very sobering reminder this morning that there are hurting people. There was a note under the door. Basically, it was from a hurting person crying out we don't know who it was, and so we're praying that God gives us discernment. And if that's you, please let us know, because we want to walk alongside of you. But it was a sobering reminder of the fact that we are surrounded by very, very hurting people, many of whom are incredibly lonely. This season, this last year, has just exacerbated the already pandemic level of loneliness that people experience where they feel like when things are going fine we feel like we have a ton of people around us who are celebrating with us and giving us thumbs up on our social media posts but when things are not going well it can be incredibly lonely in that and that's why we need community it's why we need to do life together it's why we need to be willing to lay down the 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 debatable things and those battles in order to meet them where they're at and to listen more than we talk. We have two ears, one mouth. God was telling us something in that. So, because there's so many hurting people, hopefully we're praying on a regular basis, but this week gives us a unique opportunity because this week is uh, the National Day of Prayer. It's on Thursday. And I want to invite you to join myself and many, many other Christ followers from all around Costa Mesa, because there's really only one church. We're not in competition with one another. We get to gather together, and that's one of the best things about doing life in this city, is that there really is one church, and we get to gather together. So on when, I'm sorry, on Thursday, either at 12 or at 6.30 p.m. at City Hall, we're going to gather on the grass outside. Please wear a mask out of respect, but come. And come prepared to pray, come prepared to worship, come prepared to gather together as a family, to lift up our neighbors, perhaps that, that hurt and brokenness is in your own home, 
our city, our, our country, and our nation. Country, nation, same thing, right? Um, and our world. Because we don't, it, it's not like our prayers need to stop when we hit the borders of our nation or hit the, the borders of our sphere of influence. We are in this together, and we are better as Christ followers when we recognize it's not just about our own little sphere of influence. So that's the National Day of Prayer. Secondly, opportunities to get to serve together. There's a great one coming up on May 15th. It's a Saturday. It's going to be our annual Love Costa Mesa Citywide Serve Day. Many of you have already identified projects to do. There are a lot of opportunities for you to jump in. Some of them, for those of you who are watching online, there's going to be some things that you can do, writing letters to people who are shut-ins and other things like that, that don't require you to be around a crowd. And for those of us who are comfortable being together, there's going to be lots of opportunities to serve. I, pr I hope ardently that I will see many of your faces there because that will be just as, if not more important, than showing up on Sunday, okay? I would rather honestly see you on Saturday living out your faith than on Sunday coming to be told about your faith. Let me just put it out there because what you're going to learn on Saturday will be far better than whatever it is I have to bring on Sunday, and I am not ashamed to say that. More is caught than taught, so please show up. And then the other thing that I want to let you know about men, next Sunday is Mother's Day. Not just men, I guess we all have mothers. None of us would be here without our mothers. So in this sense, everybody, love your mother, okay? And then next Sunday, because it's Mother's Day, there's going to be a couple of really fun things we get to do as a church family. We have child dedications, which is not just dedicating the child, but dedicating, de dedicating that family to raising the child and dedicating ourselves to coming alongside of them. And then baptisms. We're going to have several people getting baptized, and I can't wait to do It's just going to be a whole celebration Sunday. So it's definitely not one you're going to want to miss. With that, let's go ahead and open our Bibles to John chapter 6. And as you're turning there, I'm going to pray. Father God, I am so grateful to get to be here with my church family. I'm so grateful that you use imperfect people to get to reflect your perfect love. I pray that you would speak through me as we take, as we address this very difficult passage, one that could help have us going off on lots of different detours. Would you guide us through it and help us to understand your heart so that we can better reflect it? Jesus, we pray these things in your holy name. Amen. If you missed last week, let me just give you kind of the run-up because we're jumping in mid-story. Jesus has been with his disciples. He decided he was going to go off kind of, he, Capernaum was kind of where his base of operation, in fact, why don't we go ahead and throw this up on the screen. I'm going to try one more time with technology. Didn't work so great last week, but let's just see if it works this week. So, here we go. Come on, baby. Please? Yes, no, maybe so? No, no love. Oh, ah! Come on, come on, come on. Nope. All right, forget it. It was worth trying, but nope, there it is. Okay, you see where the red dot is that just was? That is my best guess as to where Jesus and his disciples went. It could have been anywhere on that eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, but this whole story takes place there. Jesus and his disciples leave Capernaum, which is kind of the, the northern section of the Sea of Galilee, and they head over to this wilderness area. Jesus is planning on having some alone time with his guys, but then the, the, the Galilean crowds hear that Rabbi Jesus is out there. And so they show up. They show up because they've heard that he's been doing some miraculous things, healing people, standing up to the power brokers 
in that region. And, and they're like, we need somebody like that. So they show up. And Jesus takes compassion on them. And he takes one kid's meal. Imagine for just a moment, just to put this into context, you go to McDonald's and you buy a Happy Meal. Then you take it to Angel Stadium back when it's full, and you feed everybody in the stadium with that one Happy Meal, and you have leftovers. That's what Jesus does. He feeds a crowd of people with a Happy Meal. The crowds, it, it, this is around the time of Passover, so the crowds put two and two together. Wow. You remember when Moses led the people out of, the, uh, out, of, out of slavery into the wilderness up towards the promised land? He fed them with manna in the morning and quail every night. He gave them bread. He gave them meat. And now there's this rabbi who's done the same thing in the wilderness right during the Passover season. He's giving us bread and meat. This must be the guy that Moses was telling was going to come. This must be the answer to all of our problems. And, of course, the problem that they can see is they've got some Roman leadership that has been put in a position of authority over them that they don't like and they don't want. He's been taxing them very heavily to, to fund his own little pet building project. And so they said, we don't want anything to do with that guy. Jesus is our answer. And so they decide they want to make him king by force if necessary. They're going to force Jesus to do what it is they want him to do, to be the answer to the problems they recognize. And of course, Jesus wants nothing to do with that. He came for a very specific purpose, and it is not to be a single king of a single nation. He came to inaugurate the kingdom of God that transcends every nation, not just be the head of one nation amongst many. Kind of like saying he didn't just come to be the pastor of one church amongst many churches in a city. He came, be, he came to be the shepherd over all the churches, and all of the churches kind of find our direction and follow him, and as we do so, we actually become one church. That's kind of the heart of what we're seeing in Costa Mesa, and it was the heart of what Jesus was intending to do. The people didn't get it. They wanted to force him into their political ends, and Jesus wanted nothing to do with it, so, so he actually exits stage left and heads up the mountain while he sends his disciples to get on a boat and get the heck out of Dodge because he's trying to preserve his calling and his mission from the intent of the people. That's what you missed last week. If you missed it, that is kind of where we find ourselves in the story. Let's continue. Verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake to Capernaum. So Jesus sends his inner circle onto a boat, head back home to Capernaum. So they were on the east side. They're now going to travel about three and a half miles across the Sea of Galilee back to their home base. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them and a strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were understandably frightened. We, we read about this moment where Jesus walks on the water a number of times in the Gospels. Pretty much all the Gospels refer to it, but here's the thing. John doesn't seem to want to make that the focus. John seems to be want to, wants to be more focused on the interaction of Jesus with these crowds, their misunderstanding of him, and the ways that he deals with it. So he almost just puts this in here and then keeps moving on. And so we read, when they were willing to take him into the boat, oh, I'm sorry, but they, he, Jesus said to them, it's I, don't be afraid. 
Then they were willing to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. That's all he says about it. It's like it's not his major focus. He wants to get back to the crowds and why they're pursuing Jesus. Verse 22. I mean, and the reality is we could easily lean in there and spend an entire weekend on it. We could talk about the ways in which God meets us in the midst of our storms, the ways that, you know, he can, he, he can overcome the wind and the waves, and if we will simply have trust in him, he will use those things to multiply our faith. And that would be a great Sunday, but that's not John's focus. So in following how we've been approaching John, we're not going to try to make something of it because other gospel writers do make that point. And we will do that when, if and when we get to those stories. Instead, let's focus on what John is trying to get across. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake had stayed over there on the east side, had eaten their fill, decided to go to sleep. They wake up. Jesus and his disciples are gone. They realize that only one boat had been there. Jesus hadn't gotten on it with his disciples, but then he had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias, so from the other side of the shore, show up also looking for Jesus. They landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread and, uh, after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. So this is where all of this is going to take place. Can we throw that map up on the screen for just a second? All of this is going to take place on the northwestern shore uh, come on, baby. Just Oh, that's even the wrong one. That silly me. There we go. Come on. Don't, there we go. There's Capernaum right there. That is the primary place that Jesus kind of uses as his home base. This is where all of this is going to take place, and it's going to take place in a synagogue, in a house of worship there in Capernaum. All right, we can take the map off the screen. All of this is a conversation. They find Jesus. He's in the synagogue. He begins to teach the people and have a conversation with them. Verse 25, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Like, what happened? And Jesus answered tr very truly, or amen, amen, I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life. And in other words, what Jesus is saying here is, guys, you're not looking for me. Because you read the signs correctly and you want to follow me. You're looking for me because I fed you and it was good and you want more of it. You guys are looking for me for all the wrong reasons. But then Jesus is going to do something here that he does other places in John's gospel. He is going to use the, f the thing that they're focused on. In this instance, it's bread, but other places, it's been water. Remember the woman at the well, the, the Samaritan woman? And he meets her there because that's where she's gone to draw water. And he repackages, repurposes water to be a vehicle or a metaphor for something that he wants to teach her that is more spiritual instead of kind of dealing with regular life. You've come looking for regular water, but I am a source of living water. And if you drink of this water, you'll never thirst again. Well, he's going to now take their focus, which is bread, and he's going to reframe it to be a spiritual conversation about bread that actually gives eternal life. 
Verse 26, very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Don't work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Well, the people are like, okay, well, you know, what must we do to do the work that God requires? Like, what does God expect of us? And Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. And you know, you guys, we talked about this a bunch of times. Belief is not simply intellectual assent. It's not simply thinking, oh, Jesus is the son of God and Jesus died on the cross and that's enough for me. Go on with your regularly scheduled life. Belief is an act. It would be like me taking this stool that Shelly sits on. I'm a, I'm a lot larger than Shelly. And I say, I believe that this stool can hold me up. Well, how do you know that I believe that this stool can hold me up? You know when I sit down, this act is an act of belief. I actually believe that it can hold me up. If I were to just say, I believe that this stool could hold me up, but refuse to sit on it, you'd probably question that statement. In the same way, how do we know that we believe in Jesus? Because our life begins to model that. There's fruit that comes from following Jesus and trusting him. How do you know that you believe Jesus? You begin to follow him. There's a bunch of people who are looking for Jesus. They're beginning to follow him. They're, they're salivating over it. Jesus wants to talk to them about that, but they're just focused on bread. Verse 30, so they asked him, hey, what sign will you give us that we may see and believe? That what, you, what, do you, what will you do? What sign will you give us to prove that you have the authority to teach on this, that you have the authority to make these claims? You mean what sign as opposed to just, you know, I, I've turned water to wine. In, in, in addition to that one, what sign in addition to me cleaning out the temple and, and standing up to the Jewish leaders, in, in, in addition to that sign, in addition to the sign of healing that nobleman's daughter, in, in addition to that sign, in addition to the sign of feeding you all that bread, in addition to that sign, it's, it's almost like they're saying, hey, Jesus, give us just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. And I, and I so desperately want to sit in judgment upon this group of, of people who have seen these signs and are still doubtful, as if I would be any different. I mean, how often, guys, do we get focused on something, focused on a problem, Maybe it's, I, I don't know how I'm going to make rent, or I don't know if I'm ever going to own a home, or I don't know if my kids are ever going to, to listen, or I don't know if, how I'm going to overcome this disagreement I have in my own marriage, or I don't know what I'm going to do for work, or, or I don't know if this cancer is going to take my life, or I don't know, you know whether I should get the vaccine, or whatever it happens to be, whatever I, your I don't know is. And we fixate on it, and we chew on it. That's what worrying is, right? It's chewing on something like a dog worries a bone. And we chew on it. And we pray about it. And then all of a sudden we get our solution. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. Finally I got through it. Yeah, maybe, maybe that was God. But, but, but typically what we'll do is in the moment that we're focused on it, we're like, God, help. And the moment that it gets addressed, we're like, oh, thank you, Jesus. And we move on to the next problem. And then we focus on that and say, ah, maybe it was you. Maybe it was just circumstances. But God, if you're really there, then answer this new problem, and we move on. We are a forgetful people, and we come from a very long line of very forgetful people. So I am the last person who should be throwing a stone. 
at these individuals who see the signs of Jesus and ask him for yet another sign. So what sign will you give us that we may see it and believe you? What are you going to do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it was written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Are, are they seriously trying to manipulate Jesus into feeding him again? Sure seems like that. You know, Moses, he gave the people bread. He fed the people in the wilderness. Are you going to do that again? The crazy part is, Jesus could have done it. He easily in that moment could have said, oh, you want to see it again? I'll do that trick again. Bring me another Happy Meal. He could have fed the, the, the crowd in that synagogue, no problem. But he chooses not to do so. And I suspect the reason he chooses not to do so is he knows that simply becoming a miracle worker and simply placating the demands of the masses will never, ever lead to lasting faith. He knows it. He knows that if that's what he does, then all he will ever be to them is a source of bread. He will become a cosmic vending machine for them. And he has no interest in doing that. Because he has not come simply to satisfy the demands of a whole bunch of whiny people who are following him simply because he gives them what they want. And instead of, of giving them what they're demanding in order to prove yet again that he is who he claims to be so that they will believe in him for a moment... Because you better believe that that will be momentary. They'll eat the bread, their bellies will rumble again, and then they'll come right back demanding more from him. Instead, he decides to address the, the thing that they're focused on. And he's going to start by reframing their understanding of the source of that bread. It wasn't Moses. Moses didn't have the power to give him manna. Moses didn't have the power to give him quail. It was God. And so Jesus said to them, verse 32, Very truly, amen, amen, I tell you that it was not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven. It is my Father who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from the heavens and gives life to the, the world. And this is really funny. So he's saying basically, God's the one who provides the bread. And that bread comes from heaven. And just like the woman at the well who says, I'll, I'll take that water, these guys go, yeah, sign us up, we'll take that bread. Verse 34, sir, they said, give us always this bread. We're, we're down with that. I would love, again, to sit in judgment upon these silly believers or people that are following Jesus for their inability to get what he's saying. But quite honestly, guys, I make the same mistake left and right. How often do I read God's word where he's talking about my heart and he's talking about spiritual matters and I want to pull those spiritual promises down and make them promises about my life that I might be able to live my best life now. God, you promised that you have a plan for me, a good and perfect plan. And I go, well, that means that he obviously wants me to be happy and healthy and wealthy and comfortable. That's not what he's saying. Honestly, more often than not, he has to challenge people's belief that they deserve to be comfortable. That the promises that he makes are not simply promises for the here and now. There are going to be things that are uncomfortable. There will be things that do not feel good. Following Jesus does not insulate you from the brokenness of this world. And any 
person who claims that that was what Jesus was saying is just trying to speak the promises of the world as opposed to the promises of God. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but you can take heart that I have overcome the world. His promise was that the brokenness of this world, which we will endure, does not get the last word. In other words, I am not promised that my family won't be impacted by COVID. I'm not promised that somebody I love will not die of it. I'm not promised comfort. I'm not promised that my kids will always listen to me. They have disabused me of that belief a long time ago. My wife is not promised that her husband will always, you know, act maturely. Right, Dave? Amen. We are not promised comfortable, carefree lives. We are promised that in this world we will have trouble. But the spiritual promise in that is that God, because of what Jesus did on the cross, the brokenness of this world does not get the last word. We are not promised comfort. Guys, the reason that we need a comforter, namely the Holy Spirit, is because in this world we will experience so much discomfort. And following Jesus will not be always comfortable. In fact, it will often cost us greatly because the world says, you deserve to have this. And Jesus says, no, but I don't want you to run after that. You deserve to be happy. Yes, but I want you to find your happiness in me not in that thing. You deserve to have this image in your mind of what the world should look like. You're carrying expectations. You deserve to have those expectations. And if you don't currently have them, if your spouse can't currently provide them, if your kids aren't able to live up to your expectations, well, darn it, then you need deserve to go find a different family that will give you those things. You deserve. You fill in the blank. Guys, we, a lot of us are carrying around things that we feel like we deserve. And they are hindering us from following Jesus because Jesus does not promise us comfort. Jesus promises us discomfort, but promises that the, he will be with us in the midst of it. That's why we have a comforter. All right, I'll take that. Thank you, Shelly. So if you are following Jesus because you're expecting comfort, you're following him for the wrong reasons. Sir, always give us this bread. They're missing the point. They're taking spiritual conversation and they're trying to pull it down into the, the reality of flour and yeast and water baked over, you know, a, a fire coal until it gets nice and crispy on the outside and doughy on the inside. And I'm hungry. I don't know about you. So Jesus decides he is going to just come straight out and say it. You guys aren't getting it. Fine. I'll just tell you what I mean. I am the bread of life. This is verse 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, but whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you've seen me and you still don't believe. All those that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. Well, finally, the crowds begin to get what Jesus is saying. Finally, they begin to understand that Jesus is not talking about giving them a loaf of bread each, that he's talking about himself being the spiritual sustenance that the Father has sent. And quite honestly, they don't like it. So they begin to grumble. 
verse 41. At this, the Jews begin to grumble about him and he, they, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they looked at one another and they said, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he say, I came down from heaven? Seriously, again, a reminder that a prophet has no honor in their own homeland, right? They, they are writing Jesus off because they know where he comes from. They know who his parents are. They don't have a whole lot of respect for him, and at least not in that sense. They struggle to believe. Verse 43, Jesus said, stop grumbling amongst yourselves. Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up on the last day. For it's written in the prophets, this will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one, who has, seen the no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has really seen the Father. But when you see me, you see the reflection of the Father. Very truly, I tell you, the one who believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. The food that they ate did not preserve their life. I'm the one with the spiritual preservatives, baby. I'm the only one who, who you can find eternal life from. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply amongst themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Because again, they're hearing Jesus' words. And they are taking them literally. They are taking them as if he is talking about literally coming and taking bites out of his arms and his legs. And quite honestly, cannibalism is wrong. That's gross. We all know that. And so of course that's not what Jesus is saying. Of course Jesus is not, in the same way that when he was talking to Nicodemus, he didn't mean that you literally have to crawl back into your mother's womb and be born a second time. And all the mothers in the room said, thank you Jesus for not meaning that. In the same way that he was talking metaphorically when he talked about streams of living water coming out of people who drank from the water that he could give, when he's talking about being the bread and them consuming his flesh, he's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about what he would do on that cross a few years later. Actually, probably at this point, more like six to nine months later. When he would walk to the cross and hang there, and give his life for the whole world. In that way, he was going to nourish the world. He's talking metaphorically. They're not understanding it. They're thinking he's talking about literal cannibalism, and they're grossed out and turned off, understandably so. And here's the thing about Jesus. I'm pretty sure he knows that they're misunderstanding him. And if I were in Jesus' sandals and I began to see a crowd of people begin to misunderstand what I was saying, a metaphor wasn't hitting, I'd probably change the metaphor. But he doesn't. Instead, he leans into it. Verse 53, Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats of my flesh and drinks of my blood remains in me, and I in them. 
Just as the living Father has sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And he said all of this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is some hard teaching, Jesus. Who can accept it? Even Jesus' own disciples start backing away from this one. Jesus, what on earth are you talking about? We're uncomfortable with this line of thinking. And yet even now, and again, I know that Jesus knows that they're getting confused. His own disciples are looking at him like, uh... And even now, Jesus does not change his metaphor up. He leans into it, and a third time, he looks right at his disciples. Aware that his disciples were grumbling, he looked at them and said to them in verse 61, does this offend you? Then, then what is it if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit of life. Yet, you, that, yet there are some of you who don't believe. He's looking at this crowd and he knows that there are people there who are there for all the wrong reasons. They've been pursuing Jesus because of what he can give them. Not because they're after him. They're after the gift, not the giver. And he knows this. And then he says, verse 65, he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And from this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Now again, just for a moment, try to put yourself in Jesus' sandals. You have come to inaugurate the kingdom of God. You have come to seek and save the lost. There's a whole bunch of lost people sitting in that room with you. But they have been coming, seeking you for the wrong reasons. You use a metaphor that they're clearly not getting. So much so that you double down and you triple down on it. And they get so disgruntled that some of the people that have been following you get up out of those seats and walk out the doors. I'm over it. If we wanted to be honest, this is probably the worst sermon ever given. In the sense that people are so turned off, they walk out the doors and they never come back. And if I were in Jesus' sandals, I suspect the first thing out of my lips was, guys, wait, stop, it was a metaphor, right? I would soften it, I would change it. I would go, you don't like that one? Let me try a different one on. You know, and I would come up with something that was a little more innocuous, something that didn't make them feel uncomfortable, something that didn't challenge them, and, and all of them were challenged. None of them got it. But here's the amazing thing about Jesus, and this is a part that's really challenging to me. Jesus doesn't seem all that concerned with the people that walk away from him. Jesus doesn't seem all that concerned with keeping them there. It almost feels as if Jesus is doing this on purpose. That he is intentionally making his teaching so hard that it is offensive to pretty much everybody in the room. So that the fair weather followers who are only following him for what he can do for them will slough off. Jesus 
does not seem all that interested in building a really big, large crowd of people following him. Jesus doesn't seem all that focused on building a groundswell of public acclaim that can lift him and buoy him into being able to stand up to the Jewish hierarchy in the Sanhedrin or standing up to the Herod Antipases there in Galilee or stand up to the Roman authorities in Jerusalem or even back in Rome. Jesus doesn't seem all that interested in that. We'll get to the why in a little bit, but let's finish out this story first. Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Jesus now looks squarely at his inner circle, his 12. He says, you guys don't want to leave me too, do you? I have been so trained up in the church that I tend to look at Jesus like He's impassive, like he has no emotion. Like he's asking this question and he just doesn't care what the answer is. I, I don't believe that that's the case. Because he was fully human. And these were his, this was his crew, his inner circle. And he's looking at them. And, and, the, and the statement is not, you guys, certainly you guys aren't going to be leaving as well. He's actually asking, are you guys going to go too? And this is where Simon Peter shines. This is his moment. He has some moments where he puts his foot as far into his mouth as he can, but this is not one of those moments. Because even though Simon Peter is confused, even though Simon Peter doesn't understand what Jesus is talking about, eating my body and drinking my blood, Peter looks at Jesus and says, Lord, whom shall we go? Verse 68. To whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. In other words, Jesus, I don't get it. I'm confused, but there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Even though I don't understand it, I'm still willing to follow you. And I, I, I've watched enough of the, 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 the show The Chosen that actually treats these biblical characters as three-dimensional human beings rather than as two-dimensional flannel graph characters to realize that I'm sure in that moment there was a, a sense of release, uh, relief for Jesus. <sighs> a relief that his inner crew weren't going to go. And I think he probably knew who would or wouldn't. In fact, he goes on to indicate that he did. It does in verse 70. Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the twelve, would later betray him. Jesus knows, even of his inner circle, that there's one of the guys there that's totally there for the wrong reason. And at this point, he's getting pretty disenchanted with Jesus. Because Jesus doesn't look like the kind of Messiah that he signed up for. He's not this conquering king who's willing to you know, gather together the accolades of the crowd and use those to benefit him because I think a little bit of Simon or Judas Iscariot wanted his star to rise alongside Jesus. And when he realizes that Jesus isn't playing that part very well, he wants to get off as quickly as possible and hopefully line his pockets in the process. But let me be the first to say as we kind of finish this long story that this is a really, really confusing section of Scripture. It's one that a lot of pastors often will skip over, or when I'm doing devotionals, sometimes we want to skip over it, because it's confusing. Jesus, why would you intentionally, it seems, keep leaning into the same confusing metaphor that causes people to walk away from you? 
Why do that? Why not try to keep the people close to you so you can keep teaching them? And if that means that you got to give them a little bit of bread, if you got to keep kind of throwing them a bone here and there so they'll stick around, do it. Aren't they worth it? But here's the thing that I'm convinced about Jesus as I lean into uncomfortable passages like this. Jesus doesn't operate the way that I would operate. If I were leading this charge, I would probably lead it differently. Because Jesus was not trying to establish himself as a figurehead of a worldly movement that ultimately would crown him king over and overthrow the Caesars and depose all of the power brokers. Jesus was willing to do the will of God even though it cost him. Jesus was walking slowly but surely to the cross knowing that that was the way that he was going to redeem humanity. That was the way that he would ultimately nourish all humanity. That was the way that he was going to restore the relationship with God that we were created to have. Not by garnering as much power as possible, but by laying it down. And Jesus didn't want a bunch of fair-weather followers who were constantly whining and demanding, kind of like the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness with Moses dragging them along, and they're going, why did you take us out of Egypt to die in the desert? Weren't we so much more comfortable back there? And Moses is pulling his hair out like Jeff does in our staff meetings when I say something that's not lead pastorly or whatever, which happens every once in a while. And Jesus doesn't want a bunch of fair-weather followers. Jesus is not catering to a crowd. He's not looking to let them dictate the rules. Jesus is willing to disappoint the crowds because he's focused on an audience of one. Jesus is willing to let the crowds walk away because they don't get him. In fact, it almost seems like he's culling the crowds, that he's carving off the fair-weather followers and sending them away so that he knows who's with him. He's looking for a, 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 a band of followers who are willing to take up their cross every day and die to their own comfort. Maybe even die physically, but certainly die to the things that the world tells them that they're owed. Certainly die to their addiction to power. Guys, that's not how it's going to go. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You guys are following me for the wrong reasons. Please understand that if you follow me, it will not be comfortable. That's why you need the Holy Spirit to be that source of comfort. Because it's going to be hard. It's going to be costly. People will mock you. People will unfriend you. People will tell you that your faith is a crutch. People will tell you that you are small-minded and bigoted because you feel that there is only one way, and his name is Jesus. Are you willing to follow me anyway? And most of the crowds, the answer is no. But for this small group of people, their answer is yes. And Jesus changes the world with them. Don't need a lot. You just need people who are in it for the right reasons. These are the ones that believe. Jesus doesn't seem all that concerned 
with people being disappointed with him. And I will be honest with you. This is where I have struggle to reflect the heart of my Lord. Because I feel this overwhelming burden to want to try to make everybody happy. Maybe it's just part of the way I'm designed, but I have a feeling a lot of us operate this way. I don't want anybody to walk away from the church disgruntled. Even if they've come with false expectations, even if they've come expecting that we will teach a prosperity gospel or we will teach a political gospel one way or the other, I can't help but disappoint people because anything I say, I mean this week when I send out the email, I know I'm going to tick people off. Which way am I going to tick them off? Am I going to tick them off saying that we don't have to be afraid and we just need to disregard it and yada, yada, yada? Or am I going to tick them off going the other way, say, hey, let's think about other people and all that kind of stuff. I knew I was going to disappoint people, and I'm sorry, but that's just part and parcel of it. But it, it is hard. It is a heavy thing to try to figure out how to represent the heart of Jesus when the world is trying to pull you to polar extremes one way or the other, is fighting over your voice and saying, you need to speak up this way, you need to speak up that way, and you realize that neither side has a monopoly on the right answer. And you think like Jesus is somewhere in the middle, but it's uncomfortable to be there because that's no man's land. And when you walk in the middle as a peacemaker, people are going to take shots at you from both sides. I have come to the conclusion, by the way, that if, I, if people on both sides of an argument are angry at me, I'm probably in the right place. That's just kind of the conclusion I've taken. But I struggle. I struggle with people being disappointed because I don't want people... It's, it's, I, I would love to say it's because I don't want them to re reject Jesus. I would love to say that that is my motivation. But if I'm really honest, it's because I don't want people to reject me. And I suspect I'm not alone. So how on earth is Jesus able to stand there as he watches people that have been following him and have been yelling his name and have been singing his praises stand up and walk out the door? How is Jesus able to stand there and not crumble? Because I want to learn from him. I want to be like him. How did Jesus have the internal fortitude to withstand rejection? I suspect that the, the clue to that answer is found in the very first act that he does in his public ministry. We read about it in all of the Gospels. The very first thing he did is he gets baptized. He goes to the Jordan River and he asks his cousin, John the Baptist, to baptize him. John balks, no, you should be baptizing me. He goes, no, 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 I need to do this. He inaugurates his ministry by being baptized. And as he's coming up out of the water, you see the dove come and alight upon him and rest on him. That dove being the Holy Spirit that will empower him throughout the rest of his earthly ministry. Everything that Jesus does that is superhuman, he does by the enablement of the Holy Spirit, not because he was superhuman. He had emptied himself of his divine godhood. The spirit that enabled him to walk on water and heal people and, and ultimately raise them from the dead, that same spirit is available to us. That is the only hope that we have of reflecting his heart. But then... Then there is the wonderful blessing of the Father who shouts into the heavens, this is my Son 
whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Because in that moment, the foundation of Jesus' entire ministry is established. He knows two things. Who he is, the son of God, and what he is about, his father's business. That becomes the foundation of his identity that enables him to stand there as people who were singing his praises stand up and walk away disappointed in him. Because he did not come to curry their favor. He did not come to give in to their demands. He did not come to do their bidding so that they would follow him. He was serving an audience of one. And so he could stand there knowing full well that in order to do the Father's will, he would have to disappoint some people, and he was okay with that. And that is my prayer for us, is that we would be the kind of people who are so rooted in our identity as sons and daughters of God that we know so deeply who we are and have so embraced our restored purpose of what that means, meaning that we get to be his ambassadors, his representatives of his values into this broken world. That even though the world tells us that we use Jesus as a crutch, we don't return insult for insult. We pray for those who persecute us. That even though the world says everything that you have is yours and you need to protect it because everybody's coming to try to take it, we don't hold on to our things like that. We hold them with an open palm and we say, Jesus, you have blessed me. Show me how you want me to use the things you've entrusted me to be a blessing. That when we see people who are hurting all around us, and they are all around us, that we would not just walk by because we are too busy or preoccupied with our own stuff to notice them. That we would be interruptible, like Jesus was interruptible. That we would move towards the lepers in our society, not so that we can throw stones at them, so that we can reach out to them and touch them and let them know you matter. I see you. How can I walk with you? And it's not just the pastor. It's not just Jeff and my job. Our job is to equip you to be the ambassadors of hope that your spheres of influ influence desperately need in your schools, in your workplaces. You are the ambassadors of hope. You are his representatives. And you will get mocked for it. You will have people who don't want to talk to you about your faith because they're just disgusted with how often you give credit to Jesus when it was obviously your own hard work or luck or whatever it is they want to write it off as. May we be the kind of people who are not ashamed. May we be the kind of people who don't just follow Jesus in word while living for the things that the world tells us we deserve. May we actually be citizens of the kingdom of God, reflecting his heart. Now, obviously, the most obvious response to this is we take communion, right? Jesus is the bread. Jesus is the, is the wine that cleanses us. And my intent was for us to take communion as a church family. I look forward to the time when I can, in good conscience, have us take communion together. I, I think we're getting there soon. But that moment on Wednesday was enough for myself and the elders to go, you know what? Probably a little too soon. But here's the beautiful thing. 
the way that we tend to celebrate communion is a far cry from how the early church celebrated communion. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward because we're going to worship in just a moment. But the way that we tend to take communion with a stale cracker that has no flavor whatsoever and some overly sweet juice, that's not communion. The way that the early church took communion was it was a meal that you sat around a table and you ate and you got full. And as you were eating, you remembered the ways that Jesus provided. You might take some of the bread. You might take a cup of wine and use that as a tangible metaphor for him giving his life for us and using his blood to cleanse us. But it was a meal. And in the early church, Paul actually gets on them because when they would come together for their love feasts, for their communion feasts, some of the people would be sitting at the tables and eat until they were overly stuffed and other people would go hungry. And he's going, you guys are missing the point. Well, I think we're missing the point. We've made communion into a snack that quite honestly isn't a very good snack. And I want us to have a feast. So here's my challenge to you. I want to invite you to celebrate communion as a family. Maybe it's in your life group this week where you guys grab a loaf of bread and you figure out what you, how, how you do this, but you grab a loaf of bread. I don't care if there's yeast in it. It's good. Or you get some flat bread if you'd feel more comfortable with it, okay? And you get, I, if you're comfortable and, there, and it's not going to cause somebody to stumble, you get a, a, a bottle of wine or you grab some juice or Martinelli's. I don't care. It's between you and Jesus. Or maybe it's you go out to lunch today, and as you're having lunch, maybe your communion is tacos and Coke. Maybe it's having lasagna and, and, and bread and a glass of wine. I don't know. But as a family or as a sphere of influence, as a group of people who are convinced that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, as you were eating it, remember that he gave himself for us. He endured the cross, disregarded the shame that was in, involved in that from a social standpoint. And he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And as we fix our eyes on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, we will not grow weary and lose heart. I invite you to use one of the meals you have today to be a communion feast where you celebrate that in him we are family. Father God, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you <laughs> that you put up with our misunderstandings. We misunderstand you left and right. Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for using imperfect people like us to be able to reflect your heart into this world. I pray that even today, you would guide us in the way that we celebrate that act of remembrance, that holy communion that we would commune with you, and in so doing, we would be reminded that we are family. And would you help yourself to our lives, that the way that we live would reflect your heart into this sin-sick world. We pray these things, Jesus, in your holy name.
And I hear my Savior say, your strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray, you'll find in me your all in all, cause Jesus paid
that is, I gotta just say, that is so much more fun to get to participate in than having recorded this earlier and you watching it on the screen. I'm just saying, I'm just really grateful I got to be here this morning. And as we were worshiping, there's a, a passage that kind of wraps up all of what we've just been talking about in a bow. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3. Paul comes to the conclusion, in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. Because of what Jesus did, we don't have to be afraid of judgment. We don't have to stand far off like a, like a dog that got into the garbage and is ashamed with our tail between our leg and hiding. For those of you who, do, who have dogs, you know what I'm talking about. We don't have to hide in shame any longer. We can come just as we are. And then this is a prayer that Paul wraps that thought up with. And it's a prayer that I want to pray over us. I just ask you to bend, bow your heads. If you want to put your hands out as if you're receiving a blessing, this is the blessing. For this reason, I kneel before the Father whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. It's from you, God, that we find our identity. It is from you that we are all family. Every single church, every single community, every single bit of the people on this planet that call you Lord, we are united. And I pray that out of our Father's glorious riches, He may strengthen you with power through His Spirit in your inner being so that Christ might dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray, my Lighthouse family, that you, being rooted and established in His love, may have the power together with all of the Lord's holy family to grasp how wide and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love, not just know about it, to know it, this love that surpasses knowledge, that you might be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God so that as you go from here, you will be an ambassador of hope to people who are stumbling around in the darkness. And now to him, who is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ever ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in all the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. I look forward to celebrating mothers next week, our children next week, people making a declaration publicly with their church family of their decision to follow Jesus. But now, Lighthouse, go be the church. Have a wonderful week.